Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, we are joined on the SASPOD by Anna Bigelow, Associate Professor in the Department of Religious Studies at Stanford, and also since September 2021, Faculty Director of the Stanford Center for South Asia. We are going to, among other things, discuss her new book, an edited volume called Islam Through Objects, published by Bloomsbury Studies in Material Religion in 2021. Anna, welcome on the SASPOD. Thank you so much. It's a delight to be here. I'm a I'm a fan of the pod, so I'm del- I'm really proud to be in the mix now myself. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, I'm sure our listeners uh, want to just find out a little bit more about you. So uh, start us off with some of the basics. Uh, why religion, and then why Islam? Great, thank you. Um, So I started studying religion when I went to college, um, though I think I was always very fascinated by rituals and religious spaces and all of the sort of things and smells and experiences that one had in religious spaces. And so that was always a a fascination of mine. And, And by the time I went to college, I wasn't particularly interested in religion from a personal devotional perspective anymore, but I was really curious about those who work. And so I spent most of my career in college um, double majoring in religious studies and English literature. Uh, And I was always just looking for other ways to understand the varieties of human experience around religion. And every time I was exposed to a new way of thinking or something that I hadn't thought of or um, seen or smelled or touched myself before, that was always of particular excitement. Mm. And so after completing my um, degree, I went to on a study abroad program in India. um, And this happened to be uh, in the fall of 1992, <laughs> and it was a, a program in uh, based in Bodhgaya. Uh, it was a Buddhist studies program uh, in, in focus because I hadn't actually studied Buddhism while I was in college. So I thought, aha, I'll go to India and I'll study Buddhism. And in the meanwhile, it turned out I became much more interested in Islam <laughs> over the course of my time. Um, yes. So uh, there's a few reasons for that, Uh, not to say I'm not interested in Buddhism or Hinduism or Sikhism or Jainism or any other of the many uh, religions that find homes and Christianity in in South Asia. But um, while I was in India in 1992, uh, in the December of that year, happened to be um, sort of the fateful moment when the Babri Masjid um, uh, was torn down. And that was um, as identified as being the birthplace of the god Ram by many Hindus who were um, a part of that movement that ultimately resulted in its destruction. And so I was very um, you know, taken up in all those events as everybody was, um, not just in India, but beyond uh, with what the ramifications were for India as a plural multi-religious democracy about the place of religious minorities in India 
Um, but the thing that really piqued my interest was that up until the time that that the movement really um, took on force to uh, to have the the, the mosque in Ayodhya uh, taken down, there had been periods of long periods of time when Muslims and Hindus in and around that space had uh, found common cause or made space for one another or even been able to accommodate one another within the same space. And that that was in fact true at many, many places that were not nearly as well known, often extremely mundane kind of wayside tomb shrines mm -hmm. and temples and things like this that are simply the places that you would go if you were in a particular town or village for any purpose that you might have, whether it's um, uh, healing from certain sickness or protection from certain dangers or hopes for jobs or family or um, marriage, et cetera. This, these were just the places where everybody goes. And so yeah. that became increasingly the interest of my work. Um, and so when I went to Punjab and I think it was 99, as I was um, working towards my PhD, uh, I came to um, the, the program that I was with at that time, we went to this town of Malerkotla in Punjab, which where most of the Muslim population had stayed at the time of partition, and also where nobody had died during all of those conflagrations. So I was again, completely fascinated by the particularities of that situation and what made it possible for this to be um, a place where Punjabi Islam still thrives in the Indian side of Punjab. Um, yeah. And to this day, it remains such a place. Uh, and how had they managed to withstand various periods of inter-religious stress that had occurred um, since the time of partition in 1947 up until the present day, including during the period of Ayodhya, which was a precarious time for many Muslims across South Asia um, and particularly in India. So all of those questions about how do people um, live with one another, live within particular spaces, um, find meaning in the same sacred spaces, and how to, in particular, how what does that mean for religious minorities? And in this case, um, my primary interest was in, um, in Muslim Indians and how they were making space for themselves and for religious others within their sacred, sacred spaces. So that, I guess, is sort of the longer short answer <laughs> of how I got into some of this work. It's, it's, it can be very um, challenging uh, to, when you teach at an institute of higher education, the, the, and I've talked about this before on the SASPOD, the students that we have coming in now, and actually for the past couple of years, um, weren't alive at the time of 9-11. And so talking about Islam in this very particular South Asian way, and, and particularly in an Indian way, uh, a lot needs to be unpacked, right, in order to do that well. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that makes that, I guess, easier, though not necessarily for happy reasons, in both cases, is that we're still living with the aftermath of both September 11th, 2001, and the attacks and the wars that unfolded afterwards, mm -hmm. as well as, you know, we only just last year had a decision from the high courts in India about the status of the site at Ayodhya, um, which continues to be a source of contention and um, mobilization for various groups and, um, and a flashpoint for antagonism and discrimination as well. So these, all of these, uh, these events may, might seem fresh to us, but they are actually also remain fresh for everybody because we are still grappling with their, with their aftermath. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, you mentioned in your uh, your fascination with religion that you uh, you were always fascinated with the ritual, with the smells, with the things of religion, which is what your book is about as well. So can you say a little bit more about the study of material religion? Is that is that its own discipline? Um, not exactly its own discipline. I would say it's more an approach within religious studies, which is already a very hybrid and right. um, uh, interdisciplinary field of study anyway. And so we have people in religious studies who are philologists, right, who, who really work over texts and various recensions of manuscripts and digging into particular meanings in those ways. And we have people who are historians and sociologists and psychologists, et cetera, and people who do more ethnographic work like I do. Um, so within all of those fields, the, and intersecting, of course, with art history and architectural history and archaeology as well, um, material religion has long been a part of religious studies, but has only really come into focus, I think, in um, the last few decades with the emergence of a few really sort of signal uh, publications by people situated within the field directly. Within Islamic studies, most of, that, most of the work on material objects was really being done through um, art history and less directly through religious studies um, in many ways, um, in part, of course, due to some of the conceptions that um, Islamic creative processes are abjure objects or particularly figural objects, which is, mm -hmm. a, you know, not a, which is a generalization that doesn't hold up under scrutiny as, as you, you know, from having looked at the book and I'm sure many other publications as well. Um, but coming to uh, study of, of Islamic materiality is something that, uh, that many of my colleagues have been trying to make a little bit more space for within the academy, and particularly as an interdisciplinary um, study within Islamic studies, which also draws from many, many different disciplines. So about 10 years ago, I think, um, uh, my colleague Kambiz Ghanaya Basari and I, who's at Reed College, we started a group at the American Academy of Religion where we organized a series of panels uh, over the course of five years on material Islam. And so this kind of uh, was one of the, the seeds of this particular volume as many of the people who presented over the years in that mm -hmm. project have came to be a part of this project and some others are part of um, another publication process that uh, project that Combees and I have uh, are working on with Yale University's um, online publication, which is called the Material and Visual Cultures of Religion. It's a website, Mavcore, yale.mavcore.com or .edu, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, that project is also, it's like a, a, a special uh, issue of their journal, their online journal, which is bringing together more of these participants. So um, in a sense, one of the things that this does is shift a little bit the attention within the focus within the study of religion away from texts and even to a certain degree away from ethnography and towards uh, objects and things and what we can learn if we just reorient our, our point of, of entry into a, a study of a religion or of a particular religious subculture. It's it's a beautiful. I mean, the book itself is is has a materiality that's that's powerful because it's such a beautifully produced book. Uh, but I also love that uh, things get to speak for themselves in a way that I hadn't even really imagined possible. And and so I, I find it quite subversive in that way, um, but in a very very uh, delicious way. Um, 
you you just mentioned this kind of generalization of, about um, uh, uh, portrayal and and uh, of of things in Islam, uh, and that usually uh, the way into materiality is through art history. Um, so you do talk in the book more about that, about Islam being portrayed as averse to visual art and, and the focus on calligraphy uh, as valuable because it's somehow the artsy version of text. So still very much text based, um, which you argue in the book is, is really a misconception. Can you just say a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure, thank you. Um... So it's not that the text is not important in Islam, of course. Right. <laughs> um, there, there are many ways in which one uh, can, can speak to and center a study of Islam around uh, any number of texts, whether it's the Quran or Rumi's Mesnavi, you know, any of these would be, or the poetry of Balisha, you know, any of these would be ways to understand uh, textual representations or manifestations of Islam over time. Um, but because their status of objects in Islam is a subject of debate in terms of how one should interact with certain types of objects, questions around the acceptability or the location of particular things, especially figural art. Um, there, I think there's been a tendency to, to simply take one dominant reading of Islam, mm -hmm. that is a particular Sunni uh, and rather modern uh, distaste for objects in all spaces that is not historically um, doesn't hold up. It just it's simply there's always been a huge diversity of expression, both in terms of um, the you know, two dimensional arts such as wall paintings or um, or manuscript uh, illustrations, along to um, various types of you know contemporary sculptures, or in my case, what I'm particularly interested in is devotional objects and things that are manipulated and used on the day to day and very mundane basis. This might include clothing or prayer beads um, or the tablets that people use to learn to, to write the Quran in some regions of the world. And so all of these things that are just um, uh, might seem unremarkable, I think are actually provide incredibly rich and um, uh, sensory windows into particular Islamic traditions that um, perhaps don't get as much airtime as the legal tradition in Islam or as yeah. the study of the Quran and Hadith might, um, which is again, not to say that those aren't important and valid and interesting, but rather we, I think we gain when we start to add in other perspectives from different locations, from different genders and races and regions and times. Um, and that, that just makes our whole comprehension uh, richer, and it makes it harder to stereotype. It makes it harder to create generalizations that diminish or deny or marginalize particular communities as not being orthodox or as not being um, part of, of, a, of a religious mainstream. And, and I think that those, those characterizations actually can have real world effects when we allow them to become the only voices rather than one voice among, among many. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, the, the book is beautifully eclectic. There are so many different objects that are uh, being discussed. And uh, it does kind of beg the question, what makes an object Islamic? And, and you open, that's the opening question of the book. So you, you gut punch us immediately, uh, and then you kind of deflect it all together. <laughs> so I, I wanna go back to it here um, because it's also not 
I mean, it's a good question, but it's not really the question because are objects Islamic, quote unquote, or is it just that through these objects we get a we get a better sense of what Islam is or neither or both? Um, I certainly do think that they're all through these various objects and object based uh, analyses, we do get a better sense, a broader sense of, of Islam as it's lived in uh, presently and in the past. Um, but I also think there are answers to the ways in which an object is Islamic. The, but the problem is all of those answers come in the chapters themselves. I don't think there isn't a unitary process right. by which this, this thing is Islamized. Um, you know, things become what they are um, through use, through recognition, through practice, um, through a host of different strategies, um, sometimes through textual intervention and definition and opposition, um, through their manipulation in um, anti-colonial <laughs> um, exercises, as we see in Osman Kobo's essay, um, through or intra-religious debates in that same essay on the Tasbih in West Africa, uh, mm -hmm. on prayer beads. Uh, in, in that particular case. So we actually learn a lot about, um, about what makes an object Islamic, but I think we have to learn with the particular objects rather than in a sense making, you know, these are the five factors that we can identify <laughs> right. that are Islamic about this object or some sort of prescriptive um, program like that. I think the learning about what are the ways we can think about objects and what we can learn from, from them and with them um, what, when we think about um, some of the more recent theoretical interventions around uh, what's sometimes called the new materialism, where people render objects as agentive, as actually having qualities that are not attributed to them by humans, but rather are, are actually acting on humans in various and, and non-human uh, uh, coexistence in the world in ways that are have their own force, have their own um, what Jane Bennett might call vibrant matter. Um, and so I think some of these, these issues around what makes an, an object Islamic um, is actually unfolds in the process of thinking through any particular object in its context and in its in an, and what it's doing in that space. How does it change it? How does it articulate it? How might it mark certain people off from others? Or how might it identify a particular space and be the sort of the central feature um, that is that defines a community or a, um, a locale. So I think there's a lot of ways we can, in fact, engage that, um, that question. Uh, so deflection, in a sense, I don't feel <laughs> Um, that I am the only person qualified to to make such a judgment. And in a sense, I think this also ties in with some recent work in Islamic studies when you think of um, projects like uh, Shahab Ahmed's you know, giant book, uh, What is Islam? The Importance of Being Islamic. Uh, and he, in there, he's really, in order to define Islam, he basically unpacks it completely as a, what he ultimately thinks of as a coherently contradictory um, tradition that we have to, in which we also need to think beyond text as the sole definer of doctrine and mm -hmm. of a legitimate Islamic being. And so that I think is, is still a conversation that happen, unfolds a little unequally in different spaces um, where if only mastery of certain texts makes you qualified to define the Islamic, then, then we are dealing with a fairly limited uh, perspective on what is obviously a, a vast and very diverse tradition. 
so uh, yes, uh, I, I hear what you say, and and it's it's really wonderful, and and one would wish that when people uh, learn about Islam, that you know, obviously there are some basic tenets that need to be learned, but then you know, a book like this also really brings in so many other ways of looking at it. Yet I also feel we all endow objects with meaning. We all have things we're attached to for a wide variety of reasons, and that may have richer or even religious meaning just to us. Like it feels uh, that is just maybe part of a human condition. I don't want to call it universal, but maybe, I don't know. Uh, so how are these Islamic objects different if indeed they are? Um, I would not say that they're necessarily different. Um, I think the differences, again, are always going to emerge in their particularities uh, and in the particular questions that we're asking of them. So one might do a really um, fruitful and interesting comparison of a particular, say, genre or category of objects. One could think about prayer beads across religious traditions. One could think of body relics across different traditions. One could think of... Um, uh, clothing or vestimentary practices across uh, different traditions. And in all of these cases, of course, you're gonna find sometimes similar and sometimes varying practices and they only become interesting and meaningful in conversation when we are actually understanding their particularities, when we're not trying to, as you, you were reluctant to universalize and essentialize, right. you know, the minute we do that and say, oh, all religious people wear these hats, right. um, then we've lost the plot, right? We are already over-interpreting and essentializing in ways that um, that is also not very informative, but when we start to think about, you know, particular cultures and what their practices are around the hat. Do Are people making them themselves? Are they shaped in particular ways that represent theological concepts, as in the case of the Chishti cap that uh, Scott Kugel uh, writes about in this volume? You know, he there's ways in which the structure of the hat itself is, is speaking to a, a conceptual and theological order. Um, that exists within the Chishti Sufi uh, community. And so from that, we do learn a lot about what may be a, a generic category of um, clothing or hats, <laughs> but we're actually learning something very particular about um, why, why is this hat? And then, the, then you can drill even further into this hat, which was given by a Sufi master to a disciple. And it, then you get to these very intimate relationships and um, senses and affects that are attached to these objects that um, I think is where they really take on so much of their power and importance and significatory possibilities as we're just trying to, to take account of as much of that as we possibly can, because I think it makes us richer, more interesting people when we understand more about a variety of things instead of just one way or one thing. Mm, yeah, of course. I'm, I'm reminded when you talk about um, the way things take on meaning, but then other people might dismiss them. Years and years ago, I had a discussion with a friend um, about our fear of flying. And she said, well, whenever I'm on the plane, I pray. I pray to my God to keep me safe. And I'm like, yeah, I do something similar. I once learned a mantra to keep you safe in travel. And she said, well, that's just superstition. <laughs> it's like, okay. okay. <laughs> um, so I do want to um, ask you about that, uh, that objects may be very meaningful to some people, but other people may see them as, as 
dare I say it, idolatrous or superstitious indeed. Um, and the book does talk of that, the, the potential of a quote unquote idolatry. I have to put it in quotation marks. It's such a loaded word and, and I don't like using it, um, but it is a word, I guess. So who gets to decide? Yeah. Well, that is always the question, of course, uh, on from if I got to decide, I would say that everybody gets to decide for themselves. Right. Um, but of course, we live in worlds that are embedded in um, varying power structures and um, collective ideas about particular things and objects and attitudes. And so I think that this is actually one of the more interesting questions when it comes to objects about why and when are sometimes objects okay and sometimes not what mm -hmm. how do they cross that boundary um how does one police that boundary if it's if it's regarded mm -hmm. as necessary to uh to sort of monitor and manage how people are acting in relation to objects and so you in some cases you have uh religious subgroups that would say we absolutely have to eliminate these objects from our space in order to prevent the temptation of uh, that these could you know lead somebody into uh, what in Islamic thought is called shirk or assigning partners or comparisons to God and it's often translated as idolatry um, but it's a somewhat more complicated uh, concept in that way and so your reluctance around idolatry is well founded <laughs> because it only kind of captures uh, I think a very limited aspect of the idea is that is this thing in some way impinging upon the sovereignty of God, the absoluteness, uh, the oneness, etc. And so um, there are lots of ways of being anxious about that and of orienting oneself within that um, that turn out not to always agree with each other. And so who gets to decide? Very often it's, you know, who are the people of authority in your particular circles where one lives when one lives, what sect of Islam one is um, in connected with, um, the degree to which one has any um, ability to make one's own determinations within that space. Um, so if you're living in Saudi Arabia, then there's uh, a much more, a, a state that's more preoccupied with the religious practices and beliefs of its population than if you're living in, um, say Senegal. <laughs> well, actually, that's actually not such a great example <laughs> because there are a few very dominant uh, Sufi communities in, in Senegal that have their own, um, their own authorities and their own ways of imagining what is or what isn't appropriate, but that's quite different from the way the Saudi government goes about it. Right. So um, any of these contexts are gonna have uh, a huge amount of variation within them. And so while typically the answer might be, well, the, it's the imam of your mosque or it is the, the local uh, qadi or judge or it's the, you know, the jurist who's qualified to give a fatwa or an advisory opinion on a particular matter. But it, I mean, if you go online and look for uh, fatwas on uh, Islamic objects, most of them are going to come from a one very particular and conservative perspective. And that, again, is leaving us without the complexities that actually on the ground in practice, there's a much more, um, much more diversity and much more complexity around who gets to decide what is okay and when. Um, I would also highly recommend to anybody who's more interested in this question, um, the Leor Halevi's new book, um, Modern Things on Trial, in which he's looking at the ways in which um, Islamic jurists were thinking through these questions of, are these new technological innovations in particular okay or not. Um, Navida Khan also wrote a great essay mm -hmm. on 
uh, on the amplification of the call to prayer and debates around that in, in Pakistan when that technology was emerging. And so these things and these experiences, these ways of, of rendering Islam were often matters for debate and for disagreement. Um, and so, but looking at how and why and on what basis people were making their claims to what is authoritative is where we, we really learn um, what uh, the difference between the pragmatics and perhaps the politics of, of, uh, of legitimacy or who gets to decide. Right. Right. Now, whenever we um, make a list, um, I'm thinking of a shopping list, but this is a little bit more serious. Uh, we leave things out, uh, sometimes by design and sometimes uh, through oversight. And I was just curious, uh, looking at the objects discussed in the book, whether there were items that you purposely uh, decided to not include, or whether there were things that afterwards you were like, oh, dang, I forgot the pint of milk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I can definitely relate to the shopping list. I seem to have some function that just wipes my brain clear the minute I walk into a shop of any kind. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I walk out with three things I don't need and nothing that yep. I do. Yep. Um, but so one of the fortunate problems I had with this, with this volume was, <laughs> I guess a problem, or not a problem, um, was that Everybody who I was able to include, um, uh, there were a few people who could not participate in this, but then are participating in the MavCore forum that Zombies right. and I are doing. And so that's that's very exciting that um, we still get to work with these scholars and, um, and learn from them and with them. And that's terrific. Um, uh, I didn't avoid any particular objects in the sense that uh, the book does include a chapter on uh, portrayals of the Prophet Muhammad in paintings and other uh, other media by Christian Gruber, um, which some people might avoid, thinking that this would be controversial. But um, but Gruber is a you know a brilliant and erudite scholar who does immaculate and meticulous work. So there there I had no no uh, hesitations at all about um, the the importance of having that perspective in the mix. Um, I was very deliberate about, about wanting to include people who are working in non-majoritarian uh, contexts mm -hmm. in the sense that we have two essays grounded in African-American Islam in the US, mm -hmm. one by Kayla Renee Wheeler on the, um, the garments worn by women in the nation of Islam and another on lapel pins by Michael Muhammad Knight. And so just, opening up a little bit beyond um, some of the more expected objects and, the, and even taking those expected objects in slightly different directions, such that you know, prayer beads, everybody might associate with Islam, but we don't know about the history of debate uh, around them in West Africa and how right. colonial regimes would, would check to see how many beads one had marked off to see if you belonged to a Sufi order that was seen as uh, cooperative or one that was seen as uh, rebellious. And so there's this a whole fascinating history around those, those particular formations that even if it's sort of, it might seem like the, an obvious go-to kind of object, it is also, there's a lot more there than we might think. And, um, and uh, Kobo is happily working on a whole book on this. So we'll be Great. able to, to learn even more. Um, and so part of it was just that these, all of these scholars were delights to work with and um, I wanted to learn more from and with them. And so, uh, so that was, that was um, a, the selection process was based around that and the fact that I did not want it just to be um, all objects from a particular region, place or time. 
yeah gender yeah. or race or class <laughs> or, <laughs> no, it or is. any I, of those other hegemon, hegemonic sort of uh, categories of humans and congratulations on being successful on that i think the chapter i mean it's it's a, it's a great book um but the chapter on lapel pins is probably my favorite just because it's so unexpected and i just yeah it, i loved it um all right so i want to ask you as we move towards wrapping up um i want to ask you a little bit about your vision for the center for south asia at sanford as you take on your tenure um <laughs> Of, of of this of directing the center what are some of the things that you would like to do in the next couple of years well i first of all i feel very lucky that i get to work with you and samrat who are both so capable and better at all of this than i am <laughs> so that makes uh, so that makes this uh, fun and i uh, my learning curve is far less steep than it would be without um, this kind of team here to to hold uh, all of us up at the same time. Thank so you. that's great. Um, and with that, some of the things that I'm particularly interested in doing, um, we have a, uh, a growing series uh, that should unfold over the next few years, um, focusing on caste and looking at caste from different perspectives, not just as a, as a, you know, the history in religion in South Asia, but also looking at various religions, looking at different venues in terms of the economy, in terms of voting, in terms of um, other, other formations that caste intersects with uh, in a host of ways. Um, so that's one uh, thing that we're gonna be working on. We're also, I'm very interested in developing the study of South Asian arts and, and art history. So that there will be hopefully a, a recurring set of artists that will come and uh, speak to us about their work um, that roots in and through South Asia and hopefully through multiple regions within South Asia. Um, that is uh, another goal. Um, I'm also very much hoping to work a lot with junior scholars and those who are working towards tenure and um, helping to create networks and build up their you know, skills and interests and repertoires, um, though often they're better networked and <laughs> skilled than some of us so-called senior scholars are. So, uh, but it's also just a privilege to be able to learn more about all of the, the amazing people who work at Stanford and some of the ideas that we have going on here, which is super exciting, so. Well, thank you so much. I'm taking copious notes because this is basically my to-do list for <laughs> the next few yeah. months uh, but it's uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have your vision guide us uh, thank you for the shout out also to Simra um, thank you so much for spending time with us today I know how busy you are because I create half that workload for you um, so I really appreciate you taking time to be on the SASPOD Thank you. And thank you for doing this SASPOD because I think it's really been such a success to and a great way to, to relate to a wider community um, in and beyond Stanford. So thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, we it, it came out of the, um, as you know, the pandemic and we're still kind of in the pandemic, but also kind of not. But the SASPOD has become its own uh, thing, speaking of materiality, uh, and we'll keep it going. This is, however, uh, audience take note, uh, the last one for this academic year uh, as we're moving towards the holiday season and wrapping up the quarter. Uh, but I have a great lineup of speakers for um, the calendar year 2022. So uh, if you have missed 
some episodes. The next few weeks, we'll give you time to check back. They're all on our websites. We're on all the platforms, including Ghana. Uh, but if you are on a podcast platform where you cannot find the SAS pod, uh, let us know and we'll get it there. Uh, we have found all the ways. Uh, as always, I want to express my very heartfelt thanks for Soham Shiva for creating the intro and outro. And of course, to Simra Pataru for all the post-production work that she does. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon. I'm a fan.